Lord Jesus, we've spent a lot of time singing about your incredible position over us as king. That you're the advocate, that, that our name is graven on your hands, that, that we totally belong to you and you're, our, you're, you're totally for us. You speak for us. You've died for us. You've cleansed us. And then, and then we've sung about your awesome position in heaven where in the throne room the, the angels fall down and, and, and the creatures fall down and they, and they proclaim praises to you. And so we want to join that chorus and, and sing those kind of things as well. I wish, I wish that we could see all that you're doing even now because I'm sure it would just knock us over. It would just bring us to our knees to see the way that you're ruling because so often we just see what's happening in the world. We, we see the news. Help us have spiritual eyes to see what you're doing and how your kingdom is advancing and help us be a part of that. And I pray over this message that has everything to do with all of those things, your kingship, your rule on this earth, your, your absolute rule that will be coming later. I pray that you'd encourage us today with the words that we read and your message from it. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I've received some uh, really excellent feedback recently, and uh, one of the pieces of feedback is just to be, for me, to be more vocal about like what we're doing as a church. Where are we going? Why do we do what we do so that we'd all be on the same page? And I think sometimes I say something once, and maybe I don't say it 10 times, 20 times, the way it should be. Some things I'll say every Sunday, like the gospel. That, that has to be. But um, other things we could probably say more often. One of those things is that we want to create a worship service that is truly intergenerational. I know uh, Eric has said that as our worship director. Um, I say that we're trying to put uh, more kids' elements into the service. We have some Sundays that, are, that have more hymns, some that have more modern stuff. And we hope that Whatever way you lean on the worship spectrum, you'll find something here that will fit what, 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 how you worship, the best way you worship. In regards to the children, however, uh, we've retired. At this point right now, we've retired the idea of sending kids out for children's church. We're trying to do something in the service to engage them. This morning it's going to be a story in the sermon. Lord willing, I remember that. Okay? Um, Kids, some kid, Derek, you should just raise your hand if I forget. You know, where's the kid's story, you know? Um, but another thing that that means is one of the battles I fight is I want my kids to engage in singing worship. And I know sometimes in preaching, kids can check out. Hopefully you adults don't. Um, sometimes kids can check out. We're trying, to, we're trying to say this. It'd be really good to save the clipboards for the sermon time. And parents, if you can help your kids sing, just help them sing, you know, and help them learn the words. I mean, sing it out. And, and, and I know some of them don't read well yet, but, but help them engage that way so that when the sermon time comes, 
yeah, they, they, they can do the clipboard thing or color. Uh, maybe we'll add some more puzzles and stuff to the clipboards. We might try to make that more uh, a little different as well, but we want our kids to be singing and to be a part. So help us with that. I know those are the, the ways that I'm trying to lead my family, and I'm even thinking about preaching in a few minutes. You know, I don't know what's on your minds during the service, but help us engage. And if you can, uh, we're asking you to have your kids wait on the clipboards till it's time for the preaching. No one's going to point you out, though. We're not that kind of church. We're not that kind of church. So um, thank you. And, and I'm going to try to do more vision stuff from the front, just a two, minute or two at the beginning of a sermon. Um, Rooted's coming up this fall. We're going to be talking about that in the weeks to come. You're probably going to hear that till your, your ears are tired of hearing Rooted. You know, never say Rooted again. But, but I want you to know what we're doing with that and why. It's going to be a big disciple-making effort coming up this fall. Stay tuned. We're going to be talking about it week after week here. Okay? So uh, speaking of good feedback, um, you can imagine that the board has been talking and praying about our country and the moral decline that we see. This comes up in board meetings. We pray over it. It comes up during dinner discussions. We talk. And um, recently our chairman, Dave Ogren, sent me an email and said, you know, at some point it might be a good idea to address where we're at as a country. You know, what's our church's response to that? And so I think today is a very appropriate day to do that considering the text that we're looking at. You all have watched the news, and we all kind of know that, that there seems to be this, this downward spiral in, in many different sectors of the country. You know, you, you've seen that in, in, in our movie theaters, we have movies glorifying the combination of sexuality and, and violence. You've seen that this year. Hopefully you haven't seen it, seen it, but you know about it. Uh, certainly you've heard of the Supreme Court Justice's decision to make, to legalize same-sex marriage across the country for, for everyone and how that, how that impacts us as a nation to try to uh, break down the, the structure of the family as God intended it. It is a shaking up of the family. It is a, a degradation of the family in this country. And then even this week with the uh, undercover video from Planned Parenthood that our uh, trafficking is probably the mean word to say, but, but whether, I don't know if it's legal or not. I can't tell you legally if it's, I can tell you morally it's reprehensible and disgusting, the selling of, of parts after an abortion, you know. Uh, if you haven't seen that, check that out, you know, if you have the stomach to even hear it. Um, I don't know the legality. They're going to investigate it. I can't speak on that. I can just tell you it is absolutely disgusting where we're at on that. And maybe it shouldn't surprise us, but I still feel surprised when I hear it, when I see it in the news. What does the church say about all this? And, and many more things as well. I'm just naming some of the ones in the media recently. What do we do? What do we do about the racism that, that leads a young man to go into a church and gun down African Americans? You know, just horrible I think with a text like this morning, which will be familiar to many of you, I think it does speak into where our country is at. I really debated whether to try to pull this text into the July 4th weekend. And I thought, no, I'm just going to stay on my track and, and we'll get there when we get there. You know, So that's this Sunday. It's a story of a young man named David who's just slain a giant, 
who's become a national hero and a jealous king who's been influenced by evil spirits. Evil spirits, it's caused him this, this jealousy, this anxiety. He's, he's been disobeying God, the clear commands of God. And so, as David's popularity rises, the king becomes more jealous and finally drives him out, hurls the spear, wants to kill this young man. And so David is on the run with 600 men. And Saul, King Saul, is in pursuit. We pick up the text there. Would you open your Bibles to 1 Samuel, chapter 24. And as I've been praying this week, I, I keep praying that I won't be political today. I'll just be biblical. And if it steps on your politics, whether you're right or left, I'll just leave that between you and the Lord. Just know that I have no political agenda. I have a moral agenda, a theological agenda, a biblical agenda. Um, I'm here to promote no party or no person. I have no desire to do that this morning. I believe, though, that when you follow the Scriptures... When you're following Jesus very closely, he tends to influence your politics because he wants every part of your life. It just happens. So, uh, check out 1 Samuel 24, verse 1. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. The men said, This is the day the Lord spoke to you, of when, when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went on his way. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, My Lord, the king! When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, Why do you listen when men say, David is bent on harming you? This, this day you've seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said I will not lay a hand on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father... Look at this piece of your robe that's in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. See, there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you were hunting me to take, to, to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you've done to me, but my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds. So my hand will not touch you. Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Who are you pursuing? A dead dog? A flea? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. 
May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by, by delivering me from your hand. When David finished saying this, Saul asked, Is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. You are more righteous than I, that he said. You've treated me well, but I've treated you badly. You've just now told me about the good you did to me. The Lord de- delivered me into your hands, but you didn't kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me by the Lord you will not cut off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. So David gave his oath to Saul. Then Saul returned home. But David and his men went up to the stronghold. What you have here is two kings in a cave. The present king that the Lord chose but ended up rebelling against the Lord, that was Saul. And the future king, a king after God's own heart, that's David. And they represent two kingdoms. One kingdom that's been cut off by the Lord. One kingdom that's been marked by disobedience. And it really only gets worse because later in Saul's life, he consults a witch to, to get some direction to call up Samuel the prophet who's about to die. And at that point, is dead when he, when he consults the witch. I mean, here's a king that has been, that had some good points early on, but that goes way off track. And the new king who is not perfect, but will be pursuing the heart of God. I want to I preach this text like this. We have the church in America and, and, and the values of the church, the, the morality of the church is under assault by the morality of this country, the laws of this country. And, and the wisdom of this country is at odds with the wisdom from above. There's really two kingdoms here. There's the kingdom of God and there's the kingdoms of this world, this country being one of them. How do we relate when the kingdom of this country is at odds with the kingdom of God. When the morality is at odds. When Christians are being belittled, called names. When the morality that we hold dear, that we won't compromise on, is being assaulted. What should our response be when we're in the cave hiding? What do we do? I believe we do what David did. I believe it's a biblical model for how a person responds to authority that has gone wrong. It's a model for us. What do we do? Well, first of all, and if you're taking notes, pull open your bulletin. It's all in there. You can take notes as we go. Otherwise, you can listen. Number one, first of all, we have to resist the temptation to react sinfully. We're going to be tempted to have a knee-jerk reaction to the opposition to biblical morals. It's going to bother us. It's going to make us emotional and we're going to want to overreact or we're going to want to react in a way that doesn't please God. That's pretty natural to us as human beings. I mean, if you think about Saul, Saul's chasing after 600 guys and David and so he gets an army of 3,000. The odds are not in David's favor. 
And, and why would the king of Israel even be chasing this guy around the country? Jealousy, rage. You have a sinful reaction on the part of Saul once again. David, though, is in the cave, and his men are tempted. This is the day, you know. The Lord said he's going to deliver your enemies into your hands, and this is the day. I mean, can you hear it through American ears? This is practically self-defense. You've got a king that wants to kill you, and you have the option now to kill him before he gets you. Why wouldn't you? And you've got 600 guys in a cave and you're trying to calm them down. We don't know how many were like, kill the guy, but we know that there's a number of them. And you can see all these guys talking. This is it. We're fighting men. This is our chance. Our master David, he's going to be the king. This is the moment. How in the world can you explain the probability of two kings ending up in the same cave? David, think about this. This has got to be the Lord. Can you see the people today even talking? The coincidence, it's too great. It's got to be the Lord. Well, if it goes against the Bible, I don't care what kind of coincidence it is, really. You know, you're in the cave together. So what? And so the temptation to wipe out the enemy is there for David, for the men. What's the temptation for us? when we're in our cave and we feel like we're pushed up against the wall in the back. I think there's a temptation to say, if only our party would be elected, this would all resolve itself. And I think that's a bad place to come from. Yeah, I want you to vote. I want you to vote morally. I want you to vote biblically. Oh, yes. But there's no party or person that's going to rescue this country. As far as I'm concerned, as far as the Bible's concerned, only the gospel rescues people. And so while you can have your political allegiances, and I have no trouble with that, I have no trouble, don't put your political party in the place of the Lord that can change hearts. Because we've had Republican presidents and Democratic presidents and I really haven't seen either side bring us all together. Only the gospel brings people together. Only the gospel can put all sorts of sinners in the same room and help them get along. Only the gospel does that, not a political party. So don't do that. I think the other temptation we have is to think that God's not on the move. Like It's like we kind of lose trust in God. Like, God, if you were active today, then you'd be changing these things. And I think the Lord's response to us would be, I am active today, and I hope that I'm active in you. That you're doing things and saying things. That you're making a difference in this community. And we kind of look at the national level, and it's like, it's been this way for many years. You know, you go back to the first century church. Nero was not a good guy. Other Roman emperors, they weren't good guys. Constantine, who made Christianity a a national, an empire-wide religion, I mean, from what we know, he still worshipped the sun god. I don't have strong convictions we're going to see Constantine in heaven, even though he did make Christianity palpable to the people and made it spread. I don't know. God's a judge. I have no idea. But he still bowed his knee to the sun god. And so we don't trust politics. We don't 
lose faith and trust in the Lord, we say, no, the church is here and we've got some work to do. That's what we're here to do. We just sang about it. We're the hope of the world. We're the hope of the world. Don't lose heart. To not trust the Lord in these times is a faith problem. And anything that doesn't come from faith is sin, according to what Romans says. And don't trust in a political party. I'm sure there's other ways we go off track. Oh, how about this one? How about this one? Sometimes we just get nasty, right? How many Bruce Jenner jokes have you told? Okay? How many racist jokes have you told? And you say, well, I would never walk into the church and open fire. Of course you wouldn't. But you might as well recognize the roots of the problem stem in racism. And it should have no place in any of our families. Anywhere. I mean, it's one of those things that, like, just go to war on it in your family. It just should never come out of your kid's mouth. It should never come out of your mouth. We are created equal in the sight of God. That's just good Bible ethics right there. Don't react sinfully. React biblically. Because we're tempted to get it wrong. And David's men were tempted to get it wrong. Number two. We ought to genuinely respect the authorities as being established by God. Uh, this is uh, David creeping in in verse 4, cutting off a corner of Saul's robe, and then he's conscience-stricken for having cut off the corner of the robe. He said, the Lord forbid, this is verse 6, I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed. Now, the Lord's anointed is the anointed king of Israel. I mean, God picked Saul. You can let that blow your mind for a while. You know, God gave Israel a king like they wanted, Later, he gave Israel a king after his own heart. That would be David. I'm not going to touch the Lord's anointed. Now, there's no Lord's anointed today. There's no, there's no king of Israel. There's no king of, in this country. We have a president. But the same idea carries over that we should respect the people in authority over us. We should submit to them. This is Romans 13. I'll read it for you that haven't seen it recently. Many of you could hopefully could probably quote it to me. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. So God established Saul, an imperfect, many times corrupt, plagued by evil spirits kind of king. Wanted to kill people that shouldn't have been killed. Saul. You've got to respect him. Now, I think when David cut the corner off, a lot of scholars say, as I've told you this before, that like when Jonathan gave David his robe, it was saying, my position is now your position. You're going to be the king. I'm, I'm giving the symbol of my prince, my kingship to you. And so David took it. I think by cutting off the corner, there could be the idea that and maybe David realized it after the fact. It's like I'm trying to cut off Saul's kingdom. You know, I'm cutting a piece off. I don't even want to raise my hand in that way to the king. 
And so he's conscience-stricken. Like, I thought I'd just try to prove something by cutting the corner, but really what I'm doing is maybe more symbolic than what I've even realized, and I shouldn't have even done that. Later, David will tell Saul that he meant nothing by it. You know, he says, I didn't lift my hand against you. He wants to make sure Saul realizes that. So the challenge for us in the church is you've got to respect your authority, and yet, and you've got to submit to your authority, and yet you may not always agree with your authority, and if the authority asks you to do something unbiblical, you're to obey God and not man, and you're to resist. But not resist in a way where you're demeaning the authority because it has been established by God. The President of the United States has been established by God. Can you say that out loud? The Governor of Wisconsin has been established by God. Can you say that out loud? That's just good biblical theology right there. God's in charge. God's in charge. Now, in my small group this week, by the way, there's a few more openings Tuesday nights if you want to jump in on uh, a group called Twisting the Truth. Uh, we were talking about how, um, how is it that Satan is the prince of this world, the god of this age? How does his authority play out? I'll save that for the end. Just know it's coming because we were kind of like, that's a good question. How does that work out? And we didn't have a strong answer that night. I have a better answer this morning, hopefully, by the end. But here's where let's pull the kids in for a second. Kids, I got a story for you. I don't know how you feel about respecting authority, kids, but you kids have a lot of authority if you think about it. You got your parents. They're the big ones, you know. They're the authority. But then you also got teachers at school. You get a new one every year, new authority every single year. You got a principal. You've got to respect that person's authority. And when I say authority, kids, what I mean is they have the right to tell you what to do and to obey the rules. They have the, they have the right to say, here's the rules and you've got to obey them. Now, if they tell you to lie, kids, you shouldn't lie because, of course, that's God's rules. God's rules are the most important. But they're going to make rules, and you may not like the rules, but you've got to follow them. If your teacher says you don't get to bring any electronics into the class, you can't do it. I don't care what you want to do. If the teacher says no recess today, you've been bad, they're the authority. Kids, let me tell you a story about the authority when I was a kid. I went to a school where it was against the rules to watch movies. I mean, go to the theater and watch movies is what I mean. I didn't like that because I had friends that would see all the movies and I couldn't see them. I remember... I was in a, I went to a Christian school, a small Baptist school, and there was a school here, and it was connected to the church over here. And I remember sitting in the pews just like you are today. Any of you kids put your hands on the pews when you're standing there? Any of you put your hands on, you know what I mean? Like, like this. Like that. Well, one day, I was sitting at the pew, because we had like chapel service or whatever, and I had my hands on the pew, and my teacher said, you don't need your hands up. Keep your hands to your side. Okay, hands to my side. Now, I don't care, kids. I don't have a rule like that here. You can touch the pews. It's okay. <laughs> and, and you know what? I still think to this day that was a silly rule, but I can still hear Miss Passage. Oh, she was tough. 
I mean, she was. She had the look that could kill you, you know? Hands off the pews, you know? There's probably, it probably sounded like clapping when she said, as everybody did it, you know? Whoa! Um, kids. I think it's a silly rule. I really do. But was it my job to respect her and obey her authority? Yes. And if I kept my hands on the pews, I would be sinning. Sinning. Because she's authority. In other words, God would say, Niall, you're sinning if you don't listen to your teacher. Is that the way you treat your teachers? Is that the way you treat your parents? When they say, I want the garbage taken out now, do you say, but, but I'm busy, I'm busy. They're always busy. You're always busy. I know how you are. You have tons of energy. Or do you do it now because they're the authority? Kids, you're going to have authority the rest of your life. Teenagers, this is for you. You're going to have bosses. You might as well learn how to talk good about your bosses because when that happens, you'll probably get a raise. And, and, and it's just in your best interest. We love complaining about the people over us. We love it. If you don't learn to do it now, you grow up to be an adult, and then you, you complain about your boss, you complain about the leaders in the church, you complain about any authorities, but you're going to have authority the rest of your life. The rest of your life. And I'm the senior pastor, and I get authority too. I mean, if the board says to me, Niall, you're doing this wrong, I, I listen. I've got to listen. i got authority. you got authority. And it's good. Unless they ask you to sin, then it's bad. Okay? Kids, that's my, that's my story for you. Remember, next time you put your hands on the pews, remember that I never could. <laughs> I never could. This passage was a tough one. We lived in fear. Okay. All right. <laughs> Number three. Um, here's what we do. When evil laws are enforced, when Christians are pushed back against, when we're put down, this is how we respond. We respond with good. We pay back evil with good. That's the biblical way. So when David's talking to Saul in uh, 13 through 19, um, he says, As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. Against whom is the king of Israel coming out? Who are you pursuing? A dead dog? A flea? Now some, some commentators say, that David's trying to be kind of a smart aleck there. And he's like, I'm like a flea, you'll never catch me. I, I don't think that's what he means. I think what he means with the dead dog comment is, I'm in, I should be insignificant to you. You shouldn't even worry about me. I'm on your side. I'm like a dead dog. Why even worry about it? Just bury it. Okay? I, I think that's where he's coming from. But he says, I will not touch you in verse 13, I will not touch you, and may the Lord be our judge and decide between us. God will judge. So, we pay back evil with good. And, and, and for David on that day, it was, how can I, what can I do to the king that will, that will communicate to him, I'm not going to do bad? I'm going to cut off the corner of his robe. And then, and then he goes, oh man, maybe I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> But, but I think his heart was in the right place. I, I'm assuming his heart was in the right place when he cut the robe. And so I say to you, you're going to have to cut some robes. One of the things we do really well, I think, in the church, 
is we, we look at how other people are being persecuted or pushed back. I mean, there's, there's Christian bakers who refuse to bake a cake for a, a same-sex wedding. And, and they got a huge lawsuit. It's over $100,000 that they were sued for and, and that they have to pay. I don't know the status of it now, but, but I know that they're supposed to pay that. Um, and, and we say, what if that was me? What if I was the baker? Well, what if you were in the wedding industry anywhere and you got asked to take a photograph? What if you're the clerk in the court and you get asked to, to, to help with the marriage licensing? What do you do? Now, I'm just curious. I don't mean this. I'm not trying to set you up for anything. How many of you are in the wedding industry in some way? You do things for weddings. I am. Anybody else? One. Two. Wedding industry. Anybody else? Maybe three. three? Four. Maybe three or four. There's probably 150 of us in this room. So some of us have to consider, at least four of us have to consider, what would we do if we're asked to do something with that. I won't perform those weddings. It's against my convictions. It's against the Bible. I won't do that. What will you do? But for the rest of the 146 or so here, what will you do? And you say, well, I've never been asked to do a wedding. Have you ever met somebody, though? Have you ever sat in the restaurant and had the person serve you? You ever thought about how maybe maybe you ought to tip them twice as much? You ever thought how you're going to creatively pay back good? How are you going to do that? Because it's easy to get hypothetical and say, well, I hope pastor has a plan in place, and we do. I hope so-and-so has a plan in place. I hope they've thought about this, and, and I'm sure many of them have. But we have to go from hypothetical to practical. How does it, how, what are you going to do? Are you going to love? And, and when, you, when you tip them twice the normal amount, are you going to sit there like, I'm sure I, I, I feel this way too, where it's like, why don't I do this for everybody, you know? Why wouldn't I do this for anyone and just love them well? Why wouldn't I love them well? Saul is shocked by what David does. And verse 16, he says, Is that your voice, David, my son? I love that. Because David did marry one of Saul's daughters. So legally, this is son-in-law territory here. Is that your voice? And by the way, David calls Saul father first. Father. And he says, son. And then it says in verse 16, He wept aloud. Nobody's weeping when you start giving them a piece of your mind about your convictions. But they weep when you say, I'm a Bible-believing Christian, and then you do some sort of extravagant act of love. Yes, I'm all in favor of letting people know that that you're a Jesus-loving, Jesus-following Christian all the way through, but then doing something that blows their mind by how loving it is. Make them cry. Make them emotional. Shock. Show them that you can have different convictions and yet do something incredibly loving. That's your call. That was David's call 3,000 years ago. It's our call today. 
I'm going to cut off. I've got to do something to show Saul that I'm not against him. I've got to do something. What will I do? I'll just cut off the corner to show him in my hand. My hands have the ability to take his life, and yet my hand only has a piece of cloth in it. That was a reminder, an act, I, I think ultimately an act of love. Even though David felt like, oh man, maybe even that was bad too. What will you do? I hope that when you have a chance to do something, you ask the Lord, help me be creative. Help me be shocking. Help me not compromise truth as I do it. That's David, and I pray that that's us. All right. By the way, um, I also have this thought very often that when I say I'm a Christian, when I say I'm a pastor, when I say I'm a Bible-believing Christian, I understand that most people know where I stand on many of these issues. Maybe there's some people that need to be informed where we're at as a church, but I think a lot of people already know that we're against certain things. How often do I need to repeat it? That's one thing that I ask the Lord. How often should I repeat where I'm at? Some people already know. Just something to think about. Okay, uh, number four. How about this? So Saul ends up saying to David, you're more righteous than I am. He's crying. And then he says, I know, verses verse 20, I know you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Oh, man. This was his jealousy from the beginning. (laughs) David's rising in popularity. David beats the giant. David's going to take my place. David's going to wipe out my family when he becomes king. And he makes David take an oath. Because again, back then, the nations did it this way. If you're the king that's taking over and usurping power, you're going to wipe out the other king's family. Wipe them from the face of the earth. And it was only logical because if you killed the king and the king had a son the son's going to want to kill you for taking over. So it's safer to kill them all. Wipe out the family. That's just common sense back then. And David goes against common sense and acts incredibly kind. We're going to pick up that part of the story on Get Your Feet Wet Sunday, by the way. I'm going to talk about David's incredible kindness and what that means to the church today. Because David doesn't wipe out Saul's family. Okay, here's what Saul says in verse 20, though. You will be king, and the kingdom will be established in your hands. Well, Saul, you didn't need to say that, because actually God said that. And in a few chapters, we're going to see that God's going to establish David's house forever. God's going to talk to David and say, your kingdom will go on forever. Not meaning David's going to be immortal. He's not alive today on this earth, but he means From you will come Jesus, who will reign forever. So here's our last one. You look at the country. You see what's going on. Understand and trust God will establish his kingdom on earth. It's invisible. You can't see it. No votes are taken. But this kingdom that has its origins in David and goes down the line to Jesus who is going to reign forever on the throne of David. That's all over the place, by the way. He's going to reign on the throne of David. That kingdom 
Saul spoke truthfully, it will be established. And it better than Saul knew, it'd be established forever. Do you believe that the kingdom of God is more powerful than any kingdom of this world, even though it's invisible? Do you, are you convicted that the kingdom of God is the place where broken-hearted people are comforted, where people who are in mourning find joy, where people who have been racist get transformed, where the people that have sinned in gross ways get forgiven and cleansed? Do you believe in that kingdom? Because the U.S. government can't do those things. It it can't do those things. The kingdom of God can't be changed by any court justice vote. It's been established forever because God said it. And if we tarry a hundred years without Jesus coming back, our grandkids, our great-grandkids, Lord willing, will be, Lord willing, they, they will have accepted that gospel But whether or not they accept it, I guarantee you the gospel will still be going out. The kingdom will still be going out. Jesus says it's like a mustard seed. It's so small. And then it keeps growing and growing and growing and becomes this large plant. The kingdom of God is like yeast. And this woman is working it into the dough. And it's causing the dough to rise. It's spreading through the dough. You can't stop it. It's the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is like this pearl. And when you and this guy is a pearl merchant. He wants to buy this pearl, and he finds the best pearl ever, and then he sells everything to get that one pearl. The kingdom of God is like a treasure. And this person finds it in a field. And when he finds it, he's like, I've got to buy this property. So he sells everything he's got, and he buys the property, and now he has the treasure That's how valuable the kingdom of God is. And that's what we have to offer this country. You've got the best thing to offer. And some people are going to see the pearl and say, I wouldn't give you $5 for that. But for the people that recognize its value, they'll give their life to it. And that gospel will transform them inside and out. And they'll say, I don't care what the laws of the land are. I follow the law of God. And that's what we want to see in this country, don't we? God's laws being established. So whether or not, and I will keep praying about it, whether or not our government establishes the law of God, His kingdom establishes His law. Let's keep spreading it. Okay, so I want to end with this. I I told you I was going to, I was like, man, should I answer this question? I'm going to answer the question. So I was, I was scratching my head about this. Satan's talking to Jesus one day, and he says, look at all the kingdoms of the world. Look at all of their authority. I have it all. It's all been given to me. I'll give it to you if you bow down and worship. And so I'm scratching my head going, who gave Satan his authority? He doesn't say. If, if God is a supreme authority and establishes the authority of this land, why is Satan called the prince of this world and the God of this age? How does that work? 
Those things seem to be at odds. Let me take a couple minutes, and I just want to go very quickly through a biblical understanding of authority. Very fast. Then we'll be done. Um, here we are. Psalm twenty-two, twenty-eight. Dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. So ultimately, God is creator. He has all authority. Period. Stop. He's it. He has authority. All authority comes from him because he made everything. Okay, so that's step one. That's the one you've got to get right first. Next. Uh, this is Satan rebelling against God. How you've fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. You've been cast down. Verse 13, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars or the angels of God. I will sit enthroned. So Satan wants to have the authority of God, and God casts him out of heaven. Next verse. God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Let him rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the livestock, over all the earth, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God said, I made the world. Satan was rebelled against me. I'm giving mankind authority to rule. Okay, we have it. It's been given to us. God is lending us authority. Satan comes in. He tempts us to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. We eat. We introduce sin into the world, and now Satan has a huge foothold into this world. In fact, he's called the prince of this world. Next verse. Okay? We know that we are children of God, and the whole world is under the control, there's your word, control of the evil one. Satan is in control of this world. You say, why are people so deceived in America? The answer is simple. There's a devil. There's your answer. There's a devil. There it is. He's in control. Now, again, that makes me uneasy because I'm like, isn't Jesus in control? Wait, let's keep going. Um, this is Satan. And, and the devil said to him, I will give you, Jesus, all their authority and splendor, for it's been given to me. I can give it to anyone I want to. And so I read that verse and go, is he saying God gave him all authority? I find no other verse that says that in the Bible, that, that God gave the devil authority. I think we ought to say it like this. I think this is a temptation. I think Satan could have given Jesus the nations. It's kind of like one of those, you don't have to die on the cross. Just submit to me for a minute, and, and I'll give everything to you anyway. He did have the nations in his grip, because he does have power to deceive on a global scale. He could have given this to Jesus. But I read that verse and say, it may have been given to you, but I don't think I believe for a minute that God gave it to you. If anything, as I read Scripture, Satan has an unauthorized authority. Is that a good way to say it? An unauthorized authority. I think that's the best way to say it. He's misusing his power. God made him. He's using his power over the nations to deceive. And God's like, I'm going to deal with you, but just wait. Not yet. Next. Hebrews 2.14. Since the children have flesh and blood, uh, Jesus too shared in their humanity so that by Jesus' death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil. Jesus wants to destroy the devil. And when Jesus died on the cross, he set in motion Satan's demise. It's done. Satan's done. Like, he, he's still here, but 
when Jesus died, it was like, I beat you, Satan. I beat death. I rose from the dead. You're done. Your days are numbered. Next. Okay? 1 Peter 5.8, be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a rolling, roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Satan is still active. He's defeated. His works are being destroyed, but he is, still has a lot of power. Don't, don't think that he's not actively deceiving entire nations and many people. Next. Ephesians 6.12 agrees. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Our struggle is not against the United States government and their authority. Our struggles against the rulers, against the authorities, that's plural, against the powers, that's plural, of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We have a governmental authority over us, and parts of that authority have been infiltrated by the authorities, plural, dark forces, Satan. The authorities have infiltrated our authority, our government. Next, uh, Romans 13.1. Even though there's infiltration, this is still true. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities. There's no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. That doesn't mean they're going to be good all the time. It's not a guarantee of anything. It just means God still rules. God still rules. He still has authority over the nations. Satan can deceive as much as he wants. He can't do anything that God doesn't allow him to do. If God says no, Satan says okay. He is still in control. Now, I don't know how that all fits together. I only know that God's on top and Satan's under here. I know that God's on top and Satan's under here. Tell me how the mystery of that all works out. I don't know, but I know God's on top. Next. Um, Jesus came to his disciples right before he ascended to heaven and said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, okay? All authority has been given to Jesus. He's got it all, period. He has it all. Next. Uh, It says, uh, Christ was raised from the dead and and Christ is seated at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion. Christ right now we've been singing about this all morning, by the way, is above everything. Everything. He's above Satan. He's above the governments. He's above it all. Next. Uh, Same kind of thing. Uh, He's at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Right now, everything is in submission to Jesus, even though visibly he's not reigning. That's to come. Yes, next. One day Jesus will come back He will seize Satan, the ancient serpent, the devil, and bind him for a thousand years. He throws him into the abyss. He locks the abyss, whatever that is, wherever it is, and seals it. Why? To keep him from doing the very thing he's doing this day. To keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years are ended. After that, he's set free for a short time. So for a thousand years, Jesus reigns on this earth. He is the king of the earth. He is the political power. Satan is gone. He's locked up. So there's no more deception. Nothing. Until the end of a thousand years where you see this. Uh, When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison. He will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. In number, they're like sand on the seashore. 
They march across the breadth of the earth and they surround the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet have been thrown. They'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. The good news is that even though there's mass deception in our country and mass deception around the world, Satan is going to be held accountable for that. And there's a and I read that story and I'm like, why would anyone seeing Jesus ruling want something else, right? Why would you want anything but Jesus ruling over you? And yet, when Satan's released, he's going to deceive people during Jesus' thousand-year reign. It says it. Some people are going to be duped and say, I don't like this Jesus ruling over me. You're crazy, but that's how powerful Satan is. I assume that these are kids born to believers in the millennium or, or people that make it through the tribulation have kids and there's going to be children that have to make their own decision. Do I want to follow Jesus or not? And those kids, some of them are going to be duped. And even though they see Jesus visibly, they are so deceived because Satan is so powerful. And that same power is active today. And so you may wonder why that's why. And you may wonder, what will God do? That's what he's going to do. He's going to take Satan and say, you've deceived long enough. You've even deceived during Jesus' direct reign. And he's going to throw him in the lake of fire. I mean, it's one thing for Satan to screw up the United States, because I love this country and it makes me mad when I see things happening like this. You know, I love this country. I love it. But think of how much worse it is when you deceive people when Jesus is reigning. Oh, man. He deserves every bit of torment he will receive for the pain and suffering he has orchestrated on this earth. Jesus wins. The church wins. We're the bride. We win. Let's pray. Worship team.